The advice and opinions expressed by the host of Autism Live and her guests are meant solely as suggestion and should not be in any way construed as child-specific advice. Any choices you make in determining your child's treatment are completely at your own discretion. Dr. Doreen grand is the... Dr. Doreen is an expert in autism. Doreen grand Dr. grand Dr. Doreen grand Dr. Doreen grand is a visionary in the field of autism. Now you can ask her questions on Ask Dr. Doreen. Hi, everyone, and welcome back. This is hour 24, if you can believe it. 24 hours we've been doing this, and we still have 20 more hours left of this 44-hour podcast-a-thon. So uh, thank you very much for coming back and joining. Uh, I am very excited and looking at your messages coming in and also very, very excited to have the next few guests that I have in this hour. But before I begin, I want to just tell you quickly that you can see this podcast-a-thon, of course, on our website, which is autismnetwork.com, but also you can go on the Autism Live sites on YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, and comment and interact while we are talking to some of these folks who are, uh, I would say, very important in the field and have all done tremendous things to uh, help the quality of treatment for autism. So um, with that, I, oh, bef- one more thing I want to just remind all of our viewers is that we are doing a fundraising challenge for our uh, nonprofit organization, Autism Care Today. And this challenge is a fun and interesting one. We hope to just raise $5,000 specifically for iPads. And you can see where you can donate, givebutter.com slash iPad challenge. And if we hit the 5,000 mark, which I'm hoping we will do very soon, uh, then, of course, on the 44th hour, which is tomorrow at 10 a.m. Pacific, I get the privilege of shaving Shannon's head live on the last hour show. So uh, please make that happen because that has been motivating me the entire day and yesterday. I'm really hoping I get to do that. So with that said, yeah, there you go. There's a picture of shaved Shannon, and we're hoping that'll happen tomorrow. So you have to tune in for that as well, 10 a.m. tomorrow. Great. So now for my first guest on this hour, I have a dear friend and colleague, uh, Sarah Litvak, who is the chief executive officer of the Behavioral Health Center of Excellence. Behavioral Health Center of Excellence. Uh, Sarah is also a BCBA, and she has been working in the field of autism for a few years now, and I would like to welcome her and uh, ask her a little bit about her organization. Hello. Can you hear me okay? I can hear you, and there you are. I can now see you as well. It's good to see you. How are you? Good to see you. I wish I knew I could come in in person. I would have loved that. Yeah, you could always come in person. We'd love to have you back on the show as well. It's a little nutty here right now because we have people in the waiting room exhausted people who are actually sleeping overnight here because we have guests coming in through the night. So it's a little crazy, but yeah, we would love to have you anytime. 
So, uh, how are you, first of all? I'm good. I'm That's good. Wonderful. Nice yeah, how are you doing? Pretty good. Hanging in there. I've been drinking a lot of caffeine, <laughs> but other than that, I'm good. Tell us a little bit about uh, BHCOE, B- Behavioral Health Center of Excellence. Yeah, um, so BHCOE is an accrediting body. We essentially evaluate ABA organizations across the United States and help families and clinicians figure out where the best ABA organizations live. Um, we've always tried to do everything related to making sure patients have the best quality of care. So um, aside from being an accrediting body, we also um, help with increasing access to care through credentialing. We have a learning platform for um, clinicians to go and learn and make sure they're providing quality care um, and just have a lot of other initiatives that try and either increase the quality of care being provided or increase access to services. That's amazing. And and what are some of the, as you go out and credential organizations, which, you know, yesterday I was talking about you on one of the shows, and I was saying just like uh, for an individual, a person uh, in this field, if you want to know that they are safe and well-trained, then, you know, the best you can do is is hope that they're licensed, right? Because licensing boards will now govern that. Um, and for organizations, really, your organization provides that assurance to families that this is an organization that has quality care. What are some of the things that you look at when you go in to accredit an organization? Yeah, uh, so you're totally right. The licensing or certification usually oversees the individual, and then we serve as the accreditor for the organization. And the, the hard part is that Typically, when a, when a clinician works at an organization, even though they have their own ethics code, if the organization is asking you to do things against that ethics code or the organization is putting systems in place that make it challenging for you to provide high-quality care, that's only as good as you can be as a clinician. Mm-hmm. Um, so we try and make sure that organizations are abiding by best practice. We have about 11 different sections, everything from ethics and integrity to like health and safety. But an example might be that um, we have a whole section on hiring and training, right? So we want to make sure that an organization is hiring the right people and training them appropriately. And there's probably about 15 items in that section that are looking at that entire process to make sure that if you're a parent and you're getting services, you're not having someone walk through the door who's never worked with an individual with autism before or who's never received any training and is starting to work with your kid on day one. Um, so we have all of those areas across, you know, everything that you can think of from the caseload size to level of training and supervision to what your onboarding experience is like as a family. We also have sections related to diversity and education and inclusion, inclusion to make sure that, you know, if you come from a different uh, background that the clinicians are trained appropriately to deal with those cultural changes as well. That's fantastic. That is so reassuring. If I was a parent and, you know, for parents of kids, and there's, of course, I'm going to talk to you a little bit about the increase in prevalence as well, but, you know, there's so many parents entering this world of autism and they don't know uh, how they can, who who to trust, what direction to take. And I think the service that you provide is so beneficial in assuring them that things are good. Would you say, what percentage of organizations that you review would you say actually pass and get your stamp of approval? Yeah, that's a great question. So um, the last time that we published that statistic was in 2019. Anytime we do a standards change, we typically wait a year or two to publish those numbers as we kind of norm the measures. So our last 
uh, number in 2018-19 was about 60% passing. So that's not very comforting, as you can imagine, that, you know, there's a lot of providers out there that may not meet the standards. And I think the the quote that I like is, there's 40% of providers that are doing really great work in the field. There's 40% that could do really good work in the field if they tried and put their mind to it. And then there's about 20% that just shouldn't be in the field at all. Um, and well, so I think we're really seeing that there's a difference between good ABA and bad ABA. And I think the autistic community would agree with that, right? I think there's a lot more thoughts around what that means. And I think it's because you have, unfortunately, providers who just, you know, aren't, aren't doing it correctly. That's right. And how does a parent or a family know if, if a, an organization has been approved by you? Is there a stamp or some way that they identify themselves as having been approved? Yeah, actually, um, we launched our new directory today, which has every oh, single great. clinic um, that you can see. You can go and look by zip code. You can look granularly within a five-mile radius of where you live um, to see who's accredited in your area. You can check by the insurance company that you have. Um, you can check by a number of different factors, your child's age. So that new directory just launched today on our website, which is bhcua.org. And then you'll see on the directory itself, there's a a badge that all organizations have to have physically up in their physical office location. So if you work for an accredited organization, they should have that badge on there and they also need to have it up on their website. Um, And one of the reasons that's important too is because if you do run into any issues, knock on wood, we have a compliance process. So a parent can file a complaint against the organization and there can be some type of disciplinary determination Whereas if you work if you work for or you go get services from a non accredited organization, there's really no recourse if you have an issue. There really um, isn't. Complain right? to them, but there's not much else you can do. That's amazing. That is a really really beneficial thing. I wasn't aware of. That's a fantastic new addition. Uh, Sarah, have you seen the field as a whole change in the last decade or so? What are your thoughts? Or have you seen it get better, get worse, both? I think it's a mixture of both. It's funny. I heard the tail end of your interview with Kat just now. And, um, you know, I think I heard a little bit of what she said. I think it's gotten better and worse in some ways. So I'll talk about the good, which is when I first started BHCOE in 2015, um, there was just like glaring issues with the fields. Like, you know, you had no HIPAA compliance, no, you know, no oversight. Um, You would have people who were supposed to be master's level clinicians billing a certain way, and they didn't even have a high school diploma in some cases. So just like negligence, fraud, you you name it. And I do think at BHCOE, we've seen a huge increase in compliance. And I think most of that is because accreditation has become something that most people are doing now. And you're seeing payers really start auditing, right? So that's the good thing is I think you're seeing more compliance and you're seeing more um, identification that like, you know, this is a real healthcare service and you need to abide by those laws and you need to make sure that you're doing what you need to do to be in best practice. I think the downside is that we have this huge supply demand imbalance, right? So you have more people with autism being diagnosed then you have clinicians to treat them. And so I think sometimes the therapy people might be getting, if you're not going to a great organization, is watered down. And what that means is Mm -hmm. that, you know, when I went to graduate school, I worked in a clinic throughout my graduate training. I had hands-on experience. Here you're getting people graduating with their master's who never, ever have set foot into a patient's home or into a clinic. And they're playing catch up to try and get that training that they need. So I think that we have also a problem with our universities. So, you know, when you think like, okay, it's a training issue on the on the organization side, but I think universities are really, um, you know, pumping out students 
um, and turning this kind of institutional, um, you know, becoming like a, a BCBA mill, so to speak. So I think you have those both sides and I don't think it's bad or good. It's just that there's a reaction to where the market is today. You're absolutely right. And uh, you have a very interesting perspective because you do kind of look at uh, how the market as a whole has changed and kind of the influence of private equity in our field and all of that. Um, I don't remember now because somebody earlier today was asking me about the RBT and I know that the RBT credential obviously does have a sort of practicum or observational portion to it. But, you know, I got my BCBA after I had already been in the field for over 20 years. So I don't know, I don't remember, does the BCBA itself require a practical, it does, doesn't it? It's like 3,000 hours of practical time, right? For, for your BCBA, yes. Yep. But the, remember, those can be direct or indirect hours. So, and, and, also know, they don't, and also they don't have to be in autism, right? That's right. That's right. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. yeah and so, I think like 3,000 hours, it, it's, that's you also have to think about the quality of those hours too and the yeah. environment in which people are getting those hours. So I think that's the difference too is 50% of BCBA certified in the last five years uh, have been certified in the last five years. So you have a very, very wow. young workforce, wow. not in age, just in like nascency to doing ABA. And so you have to think about the fact that a new BCBA is getting trained by someone who's only been working in the field for three years or five years um, versus, wow. you know, when I was being trained, I was being trained by people who'd been in the field for 10 years or 20 years. And so right. there's just a level of wisdom and experience that you just don't get with newer clinicians. That's a really interesting point of view and perspective that I hadn't thought about. And it is uh, definitely influencing the field. There's no question about it because I also feel that the newer BCBAs have a harder time with knowing the right recommendations, uh, knowing anything at all about kind of the biomedical or other types of dietary or interventions that a lot of the families are involved with. And that does absolutely make quite a difference for the child. So yeah. this is great work that you're doing. What do you think about this increased prevalence, Sarah? What are your, what's your initial reaction to it? I think it's the same as it's been every time there's an increase, which is there's a lot of factors that I think we're all very aware of, which is we're getting a lot better at identifying what autism looks like. So I think part of that initial spike that we saw, you know, 10 years ago was that I think pediatricians know to look for it, parents know to look for it, right? I think we just, you know, we're having like Autism Awareness Month and I think like everyone's very aware of autism at this point, right? Um, you can't like throw a stone without meeting someone who's connected to autism in some way. So I think yeah. we've gotten more um, like aware of it. But I think the other part of it too is that um, it's become less stigmatizing. So I think families are now embracing certain diagnoses because they know that mm -hmm. comes with resources and that comes with supports. And so, you know, in an environment where families would not even want to consider seeking out a diagnosis, um, that is something that, you know, I think our country has come a long way in reducing the stigma around mental, mental illness. Well, you're totally right. And it's interesting because I've asked this question of so many people and everybody has different responses. That one is a very unique one. But you're absolutely right. It has become much more uh, acceptable to, to have autism, whereas there was a phase where people were kind of hiding it to mm -hmm. a large extent. Especially, and, yeah. especially for those who are on like the higher, higher spectrum, right, where like they may be indistinguishable from peers, but maybe have some 
challenges that, you know, result in like poor social skills and things like that. It's just a little bit easier to just ignore that. Whereas now people are seeking out the diagnosis because they can get accommodations for school. They can get accommodation, you know, other types of accommodations. I think the other piece that I think is interesting too is, I don't know if you remember this during, but there were some studies that came out that people who lived closer to major cities were more likely to be diagnosed with yes. autism. Yeah. And it's like also this idea of like the, the, um, you know, the, the, like we have food deserts. We also have like healthcare deserts too, where like you have hospitals in major cities, you have, you know, a lot more sophistication around those things. And so I think we're also starting to like communicate more widely to areas that may not necessarily have had access to diagnostics. Yeah, that's definitely true as well. Uh, and in a different hour, I was speaking with folks in, in the Middle East who are, yeah. uh, and actually, uh, Get put, setting these buses up for screening and then traveling through, from city to city just to kind of the villages and smaller towns mm-hmm. where no one has access to diagnosis. But these guys are, are doing that in order to kind of help parents identify some of the red flags early on, which I think is spectacular. That's incredible. Yeah. So let me ask you one other question before I let you go. Since uh, you are, again, recently a mother and uh, now have two beautiful children, how is life, how is the life balance (laughs) as a very busy female professional? You know, it's funny. I feel very grateful because I'm lucky that I'm, you know, able to work for myself. I'm, you know, I, I have my own organization. Right. You know, that means it's a blessing and a curse because you... Um, you know, make your own hours. And like, if you don't show up, some things don't happen. Right. So I think that's the challenge. But I think the blessing is that if I want to log off at three o'clock, like I'm going to do today and go spend the afternoon with my kids, I can do that. And I just work after they go to sleep. So I think that's kind of the benefit. Um, But, you know, parenting is challenging and I, but I love it and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I also have always felt like I wouldn't, um, I wouldn't, I don't think I would enjoy just being home with kids, but I also feel like I get the best of both worlds, which is I get to do something I'm really passionate about and then also have an amazing family. Um, and then I think the other piece is like, you know, you talk about like within an organization, you have this support system, right? You have like a CFO, you have a controller, you have all these people helping you. Well, you need that at home too. And we're really lucky. We have a nanny who we've had for three years. We're really lucky. We're in a two income household and we can support that. Um, you know, yeah. and I think you just need to have support in whatever system you're, you're setting up for your family. Absolutely. And I think it benefits your children in different ways and they will be always, uh, you will be a, a fantastic model for them. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, I'm sure that they're very proud of the work that you do and, or will be when they're older as well. And I want to tell you, it's awesome what you're doing. Um, it's very unique. I ha- always wish you a lot of success, especially because I think Behavioral Health Center of Excellence is, is very meaningful, is doing really important work. And I, am, uh, I hope that you get to continue to do this and that parents especially recognize the value of what you're doing um, so that they can you know, come to your website and check to make sure before they start with any provider. So thank good you. job, and thank you so much for giving me time today. I really enjoyed chatting with you. And as I said, we would love to have you back on our show some other day. Love to. So nice to hear your voice. I can't see you, but I can hear you, and I'm excited to keep listening after I log off. Thank you so much, Sarah. Be well and have a Bye. wonderful day. 
So um, we are moving along, and I believe we have our next guest, Trayvon, if you would let me know. Uh, do we have Ariva in the room? Oh, that's wonderful. I'm so excited to get to interview uh, Ariva Martin, who is an award-winning civil rights attorney, a well-known autism advocate, a journalist, an author, and the president and CEO of the Special Needs Network. And I'm thrilled to have Ariva with us today. I'm going to wait and make sure she can hear us and we can hear her. Hi, Ariva. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Can you hear me? I can. Welcome. And in a moment, thank I so hope... Much. Thank you so much. It's, it's awesome to have the opportunity to chat with you. I'm not sure if we have you also on visual, but even if we don't, I'm thrilled that you joined us because uh, it's a rare opportunity for me to ask you a bunch of questions. <laughs> so thank you so much. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, glad to be here. And thank you guys for doing this. It's such an important uh, piece of this month where we are acknowledging, accepting and raising awareness of autism. That's right. And of course, this month, uh, you know, this particular year being so important since we just got new prevalence numbers. And, and Ariva, let me ask you, what are your thoughts about this increased prevalence now? I'm not really surprised by it. I'm glad that the CDC finally started to look at what was happening with children of color for far too yes, long. Yes. There's not been nearly enough focus on black and brown kids with autism. And this new report gives validity to what many uh, that do the work that I do in the communities that I work in gives validity to what we've known for a very long time. And hopefully these numbers will drive uh, the kinds of resources that we need to see into black and brown community. That's right, I agree. And of course, as you know, these numbers are already a few years old. And so, you know, there is risk that the number is even further or higher than it is that it's been estimated now, which is sort of a scary thought. Um, let me ask you, Eva, could you tell our listeners a little bit about the Special Needs Network? Yes, Special Needs Network is a 501c3 nonprofit that works at the intersectionality of social justice and disability rights. I started the organization over 15 years ago to really fill the void that I saw in the autism community. And that was the void of uh, to represent and be a voice for those families who lived in marginalized communities, uh, families of color who were living with both uh, the uh, issues that come with being a minority in this country, facing barriers and systems of uh, implicit bias, and having layered on top of that a child or an individual with autism or other developmental disabilities. So we've been working to, one, raise awareness about the intersectionality of race and disability, mm -hmm. and also working to close the disparities that are pervasive in our system around funding and around access to both diagn uh, diagnoses and treatment. Yeah, very well said. Uh, I was just speaking with a uh, 
doctor that I know in Louisiana, and she was saying that in some states there's still a one-year wait list to get any kind of diagnosis, and that is just so shocking since we live in California, and it's, I don't know, is it in some of the communities that you're familiar with, are there still extremely long diagnostic wait lists? Absolutely. Long wait lists to get diagnosed and long wait lists for treatment. Yeah. And even getting approval for diagnoses can also be very daunting. And, of course, California in many ways is more advanced than a state like Louisiana. But California is not without its own issues. Uh, and there are thousands of kids in California who live in poor communities, whose parents don't have access to lawyers and advocates, uh, who also are getting diagnosed two to four years later than they should be and who aren't getting into services for years. Yeah, and so of course... So this is not a problem of the South. This is a problem of our state as well. Absolutely, and of course, those first few years are such important years, right? Where the early intervention is just such a short window of time, and it's so important for the kids to get these services. Yes, and many families don't have that information. Many families are delayed uh, mm -hmm. because they are seeing... Uh, practitioners that themselves aren't knowledgeable about autism. They get a lot of bad information. Uh, they're uh, directed to agencies and programs that are not very helpful. And it can take years sometimes for them to be uh, put on the right path. Uh, so there's a lot of unfortunate running around that families have to do before they get to a place where they can really get an accurate diagnosis. That's right. And I know you, you are well known also for the training of parent advocates. Are you still doing that? And can you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. About 10 years ago, we started a proprietary training program called PAM. And that mm -hmm. stands for Parent Advocacy Mentoring Program. And we launched that program because we knew that for many families, the parents would have to be the advocates. They wouldn't uh, have access, as I said, to high-paid lawyers or paid professional advocates. So we knew that we needed to provide some training to parents that would help them become their own children's advocates, whether it was at the school district or the regional center or any other kind of community uh, agency. And we have now trained well over 1,500 parents. Wow. Uh, and these parents go through a pretty intensive program, and they're taught by some of the nation's leading experts, including experts on uh, developmental disabilities, mental health, uh, advocates, I mean, uh, experts on community organizing, experts on uh, race, uh, implicit bias, and social justice issues. So they get a very comprehensive training uh, that they can use to help their own children. But more importantly, these advocates have gone out into the community and they are helping other families. They can go to IEPs. Uh, they can go to uh, regional center meetings. Oftentimes I'll find some of our parent advocates are sitting on the boards of regional centers or sitting on the boards of other nonprofits. Many have started their own nonprofits. Uh, they are very, very active in the community. Uh, they are often called upon to testify at hearings in Sacramento uh, at the local level. So I am just incredibly proud of these parents. And I have to tell you that many of them, after going through our program, 
are so inspired to learn more and do more. Many have gone back to school to get their degree in social work or some other social services field. Uh, We have parents who have gotten master's degrees, and it's just incredible the power uh, that we have been able to harness uh, in this parent community. Yeah, and it's such a vital service, this type of support for families. If we want to tell our viewers how to find out more about the Special Needs Network, uh, what is the website? Where can they look? SNNLA.org. That's SNNLA.org. And it has all of our programs. It has resources uh, both for local folks in California as well as national resources Uh, So uh, it's it's just a wealth of information on that website. That's awesome. SNN, standing for Special Needs Network. Perfect. Thank you for that. And I understand also that you have your famous uh, Pink Pump Breakfast coming up. Tell us all about that as well. Yeah, we have a couple of things coming up. Uh, One is our uh, Tools for Transformation Conference. That happens on Saturday, April 22nd. Uh, at Cal State Dominguez Hills. That's a free parent uh, and professional conference. Uh, Congresswoman Val Demings from Florida is going to kick off the conference with a keynote address. And we will then go into breakout sessions uh, on everything from early intervention diagnoses to uh, understanding, uh, you know, how to create IEPs that address some of the losses that kids experience during covid Uh, There's going to be workshops on implicit bias and how to develop a treatment program that is uh, free of biases. Uh, It's going to have workshops on transition services, how to uh, develop a transition plan for your teen or young adult. So just a wealth of information, again, taught by some of the the country's leading experts. Uh, We provide free breakfast, free lunch. We give away food. We give away other resources to uh, our participants. So that conference, the Tools for Transformation, coming up this month in April is on our website. And then May, uh, May 21st, which is the the Sunday after Mother's Day, is our 15th anniversary we're celebrating of our Pink Pump Gala. It is a luncheon at the Beverly Hills Hilton where we honor powerful women who are making a difference in our community. And we raise money for our free summer camp and some of our other uh, health and wellness programs for kids and families. And this year, because it's our 15th anniversary, we're so honored. Uh, award-winning actress Alfre Woodard is oh. going to be uh, our honored guest. But this event, uh, and we're also going to honor Malia Cohen. She's the first African-American female elected to uh, the state controller's position in California. Uh, and we've honored everyone at this event from Karen Best, Mayor Karen Bass, Congresswoman uh, Judy Chu, Maxine Waters. Uh, We've honored pretty much every supervisor that sits on the County Board of Supervisors. We've honored even our Vice President, Kamala Harris. So it's just an amazing uh, gathering of women, all who are committed to making a difference in their communities. And that's also on our website. Well, I hope that you're one of the people that is gets honored because what you have done for awareness and education and access is tremendous. And uh, honestly, we're lucky to have you in this world of autism. And I want to thank you so much. I'm going to try to actually come to your 
pink pump breakfast this year. Oh, that would be awesome. I'm looking forward to it. I'm <laughs> looking you. forward to it. And uh, just it, you're just an incredible powerhouse. And thank you so much for agreeing to come on the show and talk to our guests. And I just enjoyed it so much. Uh, you're always doing thank much you. more than I could imagine. And kudos <laughs> to you, Rivel. Thank you very much. Thank and you, I, and thank you guys for doing this, and good luck throughout the rest of the uh, programming. Thank you so much. Have a great day. All right, you too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. And that was Ariva Martin. Amazing. I mean, Ariva for so many years, has been doing tremendous work uh, to bring access to some of the communities where it's really, really difficult to find care. Right. I mean, she was talking about diagnosis and even after you get diagnosis, of course, there's always uh, a problem getting the right providers in place. So it's wonderful that she's doing all of this. And her Pink Pump Breakfast is a fundraiser. Again, I do recommend that you look up the Special Needs Network and, uh, you know, uh, do what you can to help them because they're a very, very good resource. Thank you very much, Ariva. So I'm wondering if my next guests are on and ready to go. Uh, I was hoping to have Hank Moore and John Galley, who both work for the Stepping Stones group. Um, are they on, Trevin? Yes, awesome. So I want to welcome two people who are... Uh, dear friends and colleagues, we have worked together in the field for, God, I don't even know how many years. Hank definitely is at the 30-year mark, I would imagine, 29 or 30 years, and John isn't far behind that. Uh, both of these very talented individuals used to be at CARD um, in senior positions and have joined now the Stepping Stones group and I would love to hear from them, ask them some questions, and also learn more about their new roles in this uh, organization. Welcome, you guys. Can you hear me? Yes. Yes. Wonderful. And I'm waiting to get your visuals on my screen so everybody can also... There you are. Hi. How are you? Good to see you. You too. You too. So... Um, First of all, let's start with, tell me what you guys are doing at the Stepping Stones Group and, and tell me a little bit about that organization. I can go. So um, the Stepping Stones Group uh, really has two different units, one being the K-12 practice, which is K-12 staffing during, uh, in, pub in the public school system from everything from speech and OT to ABA, um, uh, across public school systems. Hank and I are part of what is called the Autism and Community Practice Unit, which is one-to-one -one ABA for children, teens, and adults across uh, school, home, center-based, and community settings. We also have speech OTPT um, through Medicaid and commercial insurance and have a uh, mental health uh, division as well under professional corps provides diagnostic and standardized assessment awesome. and deep penetration in the California and Massachusetts markets. Well, wow, that's amazing. So you have multiple sites in California and Massachusetts? 
That's correct. Right. Yep. That's wonderful. Um, and uh, all of these services are being provided, and of course, you work with most of the payers out there. So, and is the organization still uh, able to take on new patients? Yes. Um, although we have wait lists just like everyone else, yeah. and I had heard your previous conversation. One of the pieces I'm really excited about. We've really tried to scale up our access to our licensed psychologists, our team, mm -hmm. and access to those services um, to get kids that are waiting a year, year and a half just to get a diagnosis wow. so that they can access therapy. And so we've been uh, focused on that now for six months, and I'm happy to say I'm getting a lot of kids into treatment um, across commercial insurance and Medicaid but also a sliding scale if the families don't have access um, to funding. That's amazing. And is it still, John, that difficult to get a diagnosis even in states like California? Yes. It's, wow. it's, it's bad, Doreen. It's, it's, worse. it's worse than I've seen it um, in, in the time that I've been doing this. Uh, even in California, surprisingly, there are extremely long wait lists. Wow. Um, every type of funding, right? Regional center, commercial insurance, and Medicaid, and of course, rural, uh, much more pronounced, but I'm seeing major markets up to a year and a half wait list. That's incredible. That is just so devastating. And of course, now with the yeah. new prevalence of one in 36, it's even harder, you know? Yeah. And, and with uh, two of you, Hank, I think I was saying that you're probably in your 29th or 30th year of being in this field, mm -hmm. am I? Yeah, it's been about 30 years. Yep. Overall. Yep. So what are some changes, I guess, that you see? I, I mean, you know, you've uh, treated, I don't know, hundreds of children and um, have been involved also with operations and payers and compliance and, and so many different roles. What are some of the positives and negatives that you've seen? Well, the positives is that there's more knowledge and um, services out there than there were even way back when I started, right? So when I started, it was through UCLA at uh, Dr. Lovas's uh, UCLA clinic, and mm -hmm. we were kind of getting involved there, and it was very much not known um, what autism was and True. what the services were appropriate at that time. So now, I mean, it's it's more widely known. You see, see it recognized more often. So that's 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 good, and that services are actually funded by various payers versus way back in the day, it was either private pay or some regional center, some school district, and now it's with insurance coming on board over a good number of years. That's actually made access to care better, mm -hmm. um, so that you can see more success stories when it comes down to it. That's very true. Uh, a few days, or yesterday, I think we were talking about some of the other just like changes that have occurred in, in I guess, the field of autism in the sense that, yeah, I mean, health insurance being one of them, as you mentioned, but uh, just you, through this awareness, you know, you can go to a restaurant now and order gluten-free food, which a lot of people don't yeah. realize that Autism is one of the reasons for that, right? Because I think the first population as a whole that struggled with something like 
gluten intolerance was, was the world of autism. And I think it was because of a lot of parents that they pushed for those types of changes in, in restaurants and, and schools and so on. So it's a lot more acceptance and availability of these resources. But then again, also on the negative side, I mean, I see changes that, so the positive changes that came with health insurance, I think, are just access, like you said, and like a lot of people that couldn't afford it can now afford it. But, uh, you know, talk to me a little bit about, like, some of the changes in regulations that have affected how freely we can do the work that we want to do. Because it's very, it's starting to become a very regulated field. And also, you know, there's uh, states by states, the regulations are different. And so that makes it very difficult for organizations that are larger, I guess, to do the work they want to do. Yeah, with as as we've seen over the years with even the BACB coming on board and the BCBA certification, I remember way back in the day when it was more about the specific training you had in the field and your experience that gave you the ability to actually uh, supervise patients in the, right. in the various programs. Um, it's a needed thing to have some regulations and that sort of stuff, but it can get in the way of actually providing the service because at times you can have somebody who's had a certification. Um, However, they may not have the experience that helps them optimize and be efficient with working with, with the patients that are out there. Right. So it's a good, you always have to have a good combination of having that education background, but that experience. And I think the regulations have helped to some extent to be able to, try to get a good minimum level of um, requirements, but that in some ways can actually impact or restrict the ability for uh, patients to get get yeah. the care they need. That's very true. So uh, what are your new roles, Hank and John? What are your roles at, at Stepping Stone? What positions do you have? So I'm a director of operations for the ANC side of the business that uh, John was talking about before. Great. And John? I oversee our contracting, credentialing, um, and new office expansion, as well as part of our M&A team. Wow. That is a tremendous and amazing and good for the two of you. You're, uh, I'm, I'm jealous that you get to work with each other and also with a, a few of our old friends. So I'm really happy for Stepping Stones Group to have uh, acquired such great talent as you guys. Let me ask you guys, uh, how, what, what was your reaction when you first heard that the prevalence is now 1 in 36? What was, how did you feel, or, or what were some thoughts that went through your head? I would say kind of like your uh, last... Uh, guest, I wasn't very surprised by it. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously, I did think about back in the day when, when I started in the field. I think it was somewhere one in what about five hundred or so. Yeah, um, yeah, something like that. And so it's like we've come a long way, but um, based off of what I see on a day to day basis, I wasn't too surprised by the number. Right, because you're in the world of autism still, and you get so many people trying to get in, right? Yeah, no, and even within, like, looking at um, my, I have two kids, right, as you mm-hmm. know, right? 
and going to their functions and seeing more often than not um, more than one or two kids in their class that are um, on the spectrum. Wow, that's right, that's right. So you must see that a lot more in schools. And, and John, what were your thoughts when you heard this new number now, or number that's from 2020, actually? Right, right. And to that end, um, thought, you know, what are the actual rates now and what are we going to see? Um, but not surprised, um, but concerned, right, in, in access, um, you know, that there's a real capacity issue going on and as those incident rates and then, access to quality care, not just access to care, but quality care um, with the right training and support. And to your earlier point about the regulation, um, good and bad, but barriers to access, the number of hours that they'll be able to have access to, uh, both because of regulation and just not enough um, clinicians um, to support them. Yeah, and and you know what I see, and I was going to ask, I don't know if your organization... Uh, you know, mainly deals with young children, but a lot of organizations that I talk to, the incoming population of kids that require diagnosis and early intervention continues to increase with these increasing prevalence rates. So it just grabs all the resources, right? So there's like even less out there for teens and adults. And a lot of organizations are trying to provide services for teens and adults, but honestly, their hands are full. They're just so overwhelmed with the younger group of kids coming in that there's it, that no one can really focus on the teens and adults. Is the Stepping Stones uh, provide any service for adults? We do provide the full life cycle, but I would say, like a lot of providers, right, um, that are are focused. Um, really are on the the younger kids. Um, But we do have people that are proficient and experts in providing teen and adult services. That's great. Um, But that's certainly any city that I've ever gone to. You talk to any nonprofit, talk a feat, ASA, whatever local group, one of the first things they'll say is, you know, we don't have enough service providers for our adult population. Absolutely. And that's been like that for a few decades now. I yeah. want to say, you know, that I've heard that. Yeah, it's very, very true. So uh, let me just ask you one qu- uh, last question, both of you. What would you say motivates you to continue working in this field? What is your biggest reinforcer? I would say that the, still there's an ability to make an impact mm-hmm. is what we do. Even as working within operations right now, um, being able to be efficient it means at the end of the day that we'll be able to get um, the patients the care that they need and be able to serve as many patients as possible. So it, knowing that you still have that ability to, to make change and make an impact, that's, that's probably the biggest reinforcer. That's awesome. And what about you, John? I mean, I would echo all of that, but I, but I think just getting services out, as, as you know, Doreen, I'm, you know, I, I, there's just not enough there. And so growth and trying to help as many people as possible in areas where they're, it's just, it's heartbreaking to hear knowing what I know 
um, from doing this that every day that child is getting older and that delay is getting more pronounced that they're not in services. And so for a three-year-old or any age for that matter, but to say you're going to be on a year and a half wait list just to get a diagnosis, then you need to find out what to do. But for a parent to not know or yeah. have any action because they're waiting to even find out what path to take is heartbreaking. I, I yeah. just, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, it really is. And I, I got to tell you, I mean, first of all, I want to thank you both because you continue to help the population of, of children diagnosed, the parents, the families. You um, provide good supervision and training, and you continue to make a change. Um, having worked with both of you, both operationally and clinically, um, and, I, and being a clinician myself, I, I, um, I found it really hard to step away from the clinical care. Um, and you guys were both exceptional clinicians. And so on the one hand, I'm happy for you to have found roles that are satisfying. On the other hand, I'm sad for the field because the two of you are not out there doing clinical work. But you are, you are both very, very talented, caring people. And, you know, I really just want to thank you. It's, it, for me, it was an honor for so many, so many years to work side by side with you guys. And I'm so happy that you've landed in positions that you feel empowered and happy and motivated and are continuing to make a huge difference. So thank you for that, and thank you so much for coming on the show, on the podcast-a-thon on my 24th hour. It was awesome chatting with you guys, and you got to come back. You have to come back tomorrow and just tune in for the 10 a.m. one so that you can see me shaving Shannon's head. Oh, that'd be awesome. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Can't wait. I'll definitely try to make that. <laughs> Thank you so much, guys. It was great to see you Thank and you. hear what you're doing. Take care. You Talk too. to you soon. Yeah, you too. Bye. 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 Well, that was awesome. I love seeing old friends who are still so dedicated. Honestly, it's amazing that, you know, what, 30, 40 years ago, a bunch of us all kind of entered the field and uh, we just got hooked. And it's been such a delightful journey helping as many families as we possibly can. I have a cutoff, but I can see that a lot of people are asking about the prevalence and why is there so much more autism. I am going to have a couple of hours of Ask Dr. Doreen again tomorrow, and I really want to uh, talk more about that because this is really important. It's a very important subject and it keeps, it's, it's one of those things that we have to talk about. So uh, I'm going to cut off now. I apologize for not answering today, but they told me that I have to cut off exactly at three and I'm already late. So thank you so much guys for joining me and I hope that you will continue to watch because this uh, wonderful uh, podcast-a-thon is ongoing through the night and on, all the way until tomorrow at 11 o'clock. So please keep watching, and we're just going to take a brief break and come back with another show. Thank you again. Bye-bye. Don't forget, you can watch Ask Dr. Doreen live every Tuesday morning at 10 a.m. Pacific time. We hope to see you there.